1: Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on, we're gonna have a nice old chat. Who's in with this week? I'm gonna tell you right now. the devil are you? Yes, we are back to Thursday after Saturday's episode. What a legend Les Dennis was. Um, I'm so pleased you all enjoyed that episode. What a lovely, lovely man. What stories. What a career. Um, But yes, we're back to Thursday. I'm still in Dublin. I got up this morning and uh, started running properly. Running this time because at the end of May, I am running in the Manchester 10K and I reached out to a uh, stand up comedian and serious runner and podcaster, Rob Deering. Um, and asked his advice about how to start, and he was giving me He sent me a lovely email about uh, training and regime, which I've incorporated this morning. So big shout out to Rob Deering, thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm starting gentle, don't worry, um, but we'll get there. And uh, I'm running the streets of Dublin, which is very, very nice indeed. Um, On to this week's episode. It's episode nineteen. Can you hear that? Was that? the noises of the strange flat. It's not a strange flat, it's dead nice. Um, Season uh, nine, episode 19. We've only got one more week to go until we wrap up this season. Who's the last episode going to be? Episode 20? Seriously, I don't know yet. I haven't booked them. I don't know, there's a few people that we're we're trying to juggle dates with. But don't worry, it'd be great. They always are. Speaking of fantastic and great Episode 19 is with Amber Anderson. Now, if you have been glued to Peaky Blinders this season, the finale was on uh, Sunday, I think, Um, you'll know her very, very well from being in this season. Um, And we finally managed to sit down and talk. She's incredible. This is up there. With one of my favourites I've recorded most definitely, she's very open. she's very honest um about her time and career as a model before she stepped into acting um she talks about relationships with certain directors that may not be very healthy, so bit of a trigger warning there. Um, But do read the blurb as well, but I'm just letting you know, because I know some people don't read it. You just go straight to it. Um, I don't want anybody to be upset by what Amber discusses uh, openly and uh, candidly. Um... Uh, What else surprises next week? Um, Some information for you that I think is going to make you very, very happy. If you support us over on Patreon, we've got a very fantastic, very fantastic, just just fantastic, a fantastic lightning round of questions for our Patreon supporters Um, with Amber. So do go over there. um, And if you feel, if you feel that uh, this season has been worthy these free podcasts that we give you week in week out go to patreon.com slash two shop pod two shop podcast I, I need to uh, griff sent me all the dresses. patreon do, just just google it you'll find it um and if you could throw us uh any support and when i support say support i mean money um please do that um what else not much else really i think we should probably get down to it shouldn't we should we Yeah, all right, go on then. This is the Two Shot Podcast, episode 19 of season nine. God, it's flown, I know. With the brilliant Amber Anderson. Enjoy, and I shall see you at the end.
2: Uh, lovely. Let's all take a, a sip of drink.
0: <clears throat> I've got a pot here of lemon balm calming I, tea.
2: I love tea. Yeah. And I love your. Can you just show me your teapot again, please? This is not good for for podcast viewers, so but it's great for, for me.
0: Listeners, um, for people, listeners, for people listening, it's a glass teapot with like a kind of built-in central uh, um, brewer diffuser. Yeah. And you put the loose leaf into the middle of it.
2: But it, it's it's a fantastically um proud spout.
0: It's a very proud spout.
2: <laughs> I was trying it to wo- I was really trying to um <laughs> work out <laughs> my wording then.
0: <laughs> it's the kind of spout though that if it's a little bit too full and then you move it's suddenly it
2: Game game over. Yeah. It
0: goes travelling on its gap yeah. year. It's yeah. like it's, but it's a great teapot. I love it. And, um, yeah, I just had a friend over in the afternoon and I ate my body weight in white chocolate buttons. And so about half an hour before we started this podcast, I had one of those sugar rushes where you go, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And then I thought, I think I need some nice, relaxing, loose-leaf <laughs> tea.
2: Well, I the reason why I'm having um, a Coke Zero here in front of you, we're not sponsored by Coke Zero, uh, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was up at 4.30... Oh, Jesus. ..to go and uh, participate in a stunt rehearsal, which I wasn't really needed for, but... Stunt. Oh, cool. No, it, it wasn't that cool at that time in the morning, to be honest. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Um, so I just thought, I need something to pet me up, really.
0: Yeah, yeah
2: Um enough. Well, I suppose... It's so funny that we're talking now because we've spoken in the mm-hmm. past, um, but we don't know each other. We're we're not friends. Um, All right, but no, no,
0: <laughs> that's horrible. Cheers.
2: No, we're not It's Fun. No, but um, mm.
0: I know these things. Yeah, these yeah.
2: things are always it's kind of different. But I kind of I, I was going on to say that I knew this would be a nice, relaxed, open conversation because I feel that I know you, even though we don't. Because I think we can say who your boyfriend, partner is, can't we? Yeah,
0: people know. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So And and also, Connor, um, when Connor came on the podcast all those years ago, was such you know, a huge, massive hit for everybody. Mm. Um, and we've we've been in touch in the past with regards to work projects and mm-hmm. we've discussed things. Um, so it was only a matter of time before we got you on. And I think now um, at the finale of Peaky Blinders, which we'll talk about yeah. later on, because you know this podcast, we don't talk about work that much, but I do want to discuss it um, later on. But I think what we should talk about first uh, is possibly music?
0: Sure, yeah. Is
2: that, a good, is that a good way to start?
0: I think so. I mean, it was definitely what I thought I would end up doing um, when I was a kid. Specifically, well,
2: specifically the piano?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I was always going to end up being on stage, I thought. I started, uh, I started thinking I'd be an actor when I was really young, like in primary school. And I went to a Steiner school, so I had a Wardolf education until I was about 10, which I I don't know if people know, but it's...
2: Well, yeah, exactly, because I think I... Because my son's 10, we... Me and his mum flirted with that idea of, of the Steiner education. But for those that don't know, and for those that live outside the UK or possibly don't know, can you explain a little bit about the Steiner education?
0: Um, Well, my understanding of it is that it's a sort of alternative uh, style of education where they believe that kids... um should have the opportunity to be kids and develop their imaginations and develop their creativity. Um, and it was founded by a man called Rudolf Steiner, um, which I thought, always think is a brilliant name. And it, well, he, it is. Yeah, <laughs> this is a ridiculous name. Um, and he believed, I think, something along the lines that um, the human brain uh, develops in seven-year cycles. And so he saw the first seven years of a child's life as kind of sacred and literally this sort of childhood like as in it should be like a hood that's over your head of of uh, safety and no kind of real obligation to be academic and so you don't learn to read or write until you're eight and sort of before the age of eight it's very much centered around uh, being outside being in nature learning how to sew learning how to carve wood <laughs> learning how to um, you know build a den in the forest and... But, al- but,
2: also, but also playing. Yeah, lots and, being and lots in an, of... And being lots of interaction.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then also, once you do begin to get into the sort of academic side of things, you don't do um, your lessons by subject, you do your lessons by topic. So instead of, like, maths, English, geography, music, you'll study something like ancient Egypt. And then within the topic of ancient Egypt, you will learn about maths, English, uh, spelling, music, you know, you'll, you'll you'll have all of those things worked into the kind of overall topic of whatever it is you're studying. Um, and so it's basically a very creative um, environment. And I think my mum really, really wanted me to have that kind of start in life. And I was already a really um, big reader. And her plan of sort of putting off the reading until the age of eight didn't really work very well because I before we moved to Scotland, when we lived in England, before that, um, I went to a kind of... Was that in Somerset? Yes. So, yes. So I was born in in Glastonbury in Somerset. And then um, we moved around a little bit within that part of the world, but then when I was six, we moved up to Scotland. Um, And sort of just before that, I'd gone to, like, a regular state primary school in England and basically had learned to read in the space of about six months. And, um, and so I was sort of at the Steiner School, sitting in the back of the classroom while all the other kids were learning the alphabet, kind of like reading books and stuff. and <laughs> Just really, really cool, you know. Um, and, uh, but I think it was an amazing um, start, and um, it definitely put me on a track of thinking that I would end up doing something artistic, like, for sure. Um, yeah,
2: but I think it does. I'm not um, at all poo pooing the um, Steiner education at all because I think it, mm. it, it it is incredible, mm. and it does facilitate and put that creativity right there mm. for the children. Yeah, but it's you know it's every education is an individual process.
0: Oh my god! Yeah, 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 yeah. and I think for me. I mean, I mean, we'll get on to this, but I ended up going to, um, well, I, I ended up going to music school, but I it was joined onto a very normal local state high school, and so I ended up doing all of the more academic things, and I think that was really good for me to have a bit of both because actually I am also fairly academic, and so I think, I think potentially being in Steiner until I was eighteen might have been slight kind of uh, creative overkill, you know, and I I think. Um, I think it, when I think about if I have kids and when I have kids and what I would want to do, I, I love the idea of them going to Steiner schools, but I wonder if maybe the good balance of it would be up until about the age of 10 or 11, you know, and then giving them a chance to do something a little bit more regular. I don't know.
2: I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Because then there's you've got to think about the transition. Mm. When they've been in that bubble... Mm. um for so many years to move yeah. them into state or private or whatever education mm. it's like oh, it's kind of different i don't know it's
0: yeah 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 i hey, think it's the same thing it's like do you raise your kids in the city or in the countryside like do you want them to be streetwise and you know be able to navigate a city or do you want them to have the safety and the freedom and the sort of luxury of the space of the countryside. It's a really tricky. Well,
2: it's 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 a really it's a really tricky balance. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when we had our son, you know, at the end of May, he's eleven. So mm. this year he's going into secondary school, mm. and we we'd been in London for so long. It was like I don't know if. I want to raise our child in London. I'm mm. not sure. I don't know. If, I don't know if emotionally uh, one thing we can balance that. I'm not sure. And so we moved out. And loads of people know this. We moved out to the countryside. And it's
1: uh, is it safer? Well,
2: I don't know. Mm. I don't think so. I think. You know, you you dip into the city, you have a different um, relationship yeah. with, with, with a city than you do to the countryside. So, as I'm sure you did growing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. You know?
0: But then I, I think on the flip side of that, you know, I basically was a country girl until I was 17 and then I moved to London on my own at 17 and just was like my mind was boggled by London, you know. On the one hand, it was so exciting and like, oh, my God, this is the place I've always wanted to live and isn't this amazing? But on the other hand, I mean, I was, I was really naive, you know. I was really naive and I really got myself into certain situations that I think if I'd maybe been a bit more streetwise, maybe I wouldn't have gotten into because I think I was just naturally very trusting of everyone and
2: Yeah, but so the thing tricky. is, uh, the thing, it is so tricky, but you were 17 yeah i I was seventeen and I was from a seaside town
0: yeah
2: and i and I moved to London at that time mm. and I was stupidly naive oh my god you know yeah w were there times when you were worried about moving to London at that time or also um, all certain situations that you got yourself into or situations were thrust upon you
0: not until i think after the fact um I had, I'd quit music school at 16. I decided that I didn't want to be a musician and that I wanted to be an actor. And I had gotten which, a...
2: Which we're going to go back on this, by the way. We're yeah. Going to ju- we are going to jump around. <laughs>
0: um, and I got a scholarship to this school called Gordonston, which is quite a posh private school up in Scotland. And I, I had gotten a very um, amazing thing which is that I'd, I'd audition I'd wanted to be an actor I'd auditioned for the drama scholarship and I'd auditioned for the music scholarship because I'd been at music school so that was like kind of an obvious thing to go for and they both wanted to give me the scholarship but they couldn't give um one student two scholarships <laughs> so they they made me a new scholarship and so I went to this I went to wow. Gordonstone under this sort of new thing that they'd created which was like a what they called a performing arts scholarship but what that meant was i basically had to kind of major in two things which they hadn't ever really asked of any student before and i'd also just started modeling and i'd also just gone to london for the first time age 16 on my own for two months and done photo shoots and thought I was, you know, 35 and actually I was still a child. <laughs> so, so I was like smoking cigarettes and stuff. And I got to Gordonston and I so desperately wanted to be a proper trained actor. I, I always thought I'd be a theatre actor, to be honest. Stay, uh, screen ended up being kind of just what happened, I think, because I didn't train, you know, in the end. And... I got to Gordonston and I just, I, I, I mean, all respect to the school, I hated it. I, I, was, I was too independent already. You know, I'd already been in London for two months and thought I was, you know, the shit. And, um, and I sort of got caught smoking three times in my first term by one of the house mistresses and I got sort of grounded effectively. And I was just really miserable. And also, I had sort of said to them, because I'd been scouted to be a model... I'd said, listen, you know, the scholarship's amazing, but I actually, I I can't afford to come here unless I uh, do a few modelling jobs here and there and kind of put myself through this school. And the admissions people had sort of gone, yeah, 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 that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. And then when I got there, the sort of reality of me actually missing class and missing, especially in the drama department, you know, missing rehearsals and stuff that the teachers sort of understandably didn't really like. And so it got to a point where they were like, well, no, you can't leave to go and model, we need you here, you're a scholar, mm. you're supposed to be leading the department. Um, and I was sort of put in a, in a kind of an impossible situation, really. And so I left after a term and a half. Um, and I and so in, in a sense, I kind of moved to London because I, I literally didn't have anything else to do. I'd sort of made the decision that I was leaving school. I had an agent already, which was quite lucky. Um, and I just kind of got to a point really where I thought well I've got an agent I'm already in a in a situation that you know a lot of people my age aren't even in yet so why am I not moving to London and starting to audition and trying to make it work but it did definitely create a sense that there was a necessity to it that I didn't have any backup option and it was very difficult in my family, you know, my mum my mum was very against me moving to London, understandably, she was very scared of what might happen. My dad was quite supportive, but he kind of very sweetly was like, I'll always be there for you, but I, d- I can't physically afford to help you. So if you are going to move to London, you need to know that you're doing this on your own, you know. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And I'd done one modelling job for uh, Jack Wills, which in those days was really quite exciting. And I had something like two and a half grand, which my 17-year-old self thought was, like, so much money.
2: Well, it it was at 17. My God. It was keep me
0: going for years in London. Um, Look,
2: I I was working in Pizza (laughs) Hut in Wood Green. and, (laughs) and, and, And it was... Loads of money for me, and I was getting yeah. all the free pizza I could deliver to my drama school mates
0: oh. uh, on the slide. <laughs> yeah. it,
2: was the, it was the best gig <laughs> in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of money, and I um, and I was naive. And, and so I moved to London with this two and a half grand. I think it was two and a half grand. And then obviously, you know, I found a little room on Gumtree in a flat in Homerton. This is 13 years ago, before Homerton was... Gentrified,
2: yeah, of course.
0: Coffee shops. It was really, really kind of quite dicey sometimes. Um, and I ran out of money after about two months oh, because, shit. Of, because of course I did because I was yeah. living in London and London's yeah. really expensive. And sort of no one had told me as both an actor and a model that just because you had an agent didn't necessarily mean that you would really get jobs. And um, I just didn't get jobs, you know and so i moved to london thinking that that would be it and that i would be you know on a roll and then nothing happened you know i i i i just i i barely i got some auditions but i didn't have a clue how to be an actor i didn't have a clue how to act you know i'd i'd only done school plays i had no idea about screen acting and i was trying to model to kind of pay for myself to stay in london and support myself but it's the same as a model, you know it sometimes takes a year of going to castings before anything happens um and so it got to a point where i was I was doing waitressing and working in shops and I was a personal assistant to someone at one point um and it just became uh, sort of untenable really, and so I ended up moving back to Scotland and actually getting the night bus to London for auditions because it was cheaper to live in Scotland and get the night bus to go for an audition than it was to obviously live in London. No! And so that whole year was just on the bus, back and down to Victoria, you know, brushing my teeth in Victoria Coach Station. But then kind of, because I was modelling, I was getting into situations where, you know, other girls would be like, oh, come out tonight with this promoter to this club. And I'd be like, yeah, of course. And I'd go, you know, to some awful, like, Mayfair club with, like, sleazy older men. And so I was I was very exposed very quickly, I think, to, like, a very um, dark and sort of quite seedy side of London. And I sort of look back at my 17-year-old self and just kind of want to give her a hug and be like, oh, God, babe, like, come in, let me give you a cup of tea. <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah. Can, can, can we just roll back a bit about uh, being yeah. scouted for a model? Yes. Because you hear... And you read all the time about, oh, well, I just, I met somebody in TK Maxx mm-hmm. or on the street or how did it happen for you? Because I would be, if I had a daughter and I don't, mm. when she was approached, I would be extremely wary about whether it would be genuine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. obviously you hear so much. Oh, my God. Especially yeah. now with, well, certainly with certain actors that have come to light about auditions and, mm-hmm. you know, things that you may have to take your clothes off, which, listeners, you never have to do. mm Um...
0: And, um, and and as models and i know this isn't a modeling podcast but um no no
2: no but no but it's you know, it's not it's, it's 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 a creative podcast it's, yeah. a, it's a personal podcast but so you can say whatever you like
0: well there's with models there's a big thing of of like you know um dodgy agencies sort of asking you to pay up front for pictures and things so you know you'll get sort of inverted commas scouted and then they'll be like oh could you pay us 800 pounds for this photo shoot and then and then you'll get jobs and and so people shell out all this money, and I think the main thing I've always said to when I was modelling, because I'm not now, actually, but when I was, you know, and people would ask me for advice, I'd be like, never, ever, ever pay up front for anything because you never should. And um, And also I think just it's not normal to be asked to take your clothes off when you're 16, you know, and things that when you're very young and people ask you to do, you feel obligated to do because you don't want to cause a fuss and you want to get a job and you want to be liked and um
2: I don't want to interrupt yeah. you here although I am
0: please was was
2: <laughs> was that ever something that you were asked to do when you were young
0: oh my god yeah like I, I was lucky because so I was scouted by a really good agency I'll tell you how, how I was scouted actually okay quickly. I, I was on. at music school and um very just into my piano and thinking I was going to be a pianist um and my friend at music school said she well she had she and a couple of other people had started to say oh you should model you're really tall or like you're really you should you should model you've got great skin and i was just like what like don't think so that's ridiculous because i was just like i was a music kid you know all i did was play piano and um and, you know, I was bullied at school for quite a few years and I just, I wasn't confident at all. I did not see myself in any way, shape or form as like, um, subjectively good looking. I, I, I hadn't, I didn't even kiss a boy until I was 16. I was so late to every party. And so when people <laughs> started suggesting I could be a model, I was like, well, I think you're on something, um. But my friend at music school found this um, advert in this teen magazine called Sugar Magazine, which was like a very big...
2: I remember Sugar. You remember Sugar? I remember Sugar.
0: (laughs) And um, Sugar Magazine did a model competition, and it was sponsored by Rimmel Cosmetics, and it was in partnership with ICM Models, which was the model division of ICM, which now is independent. And she was like you've got to enter this competition. Like, and when you enter, you get £150 worth of free Rimmel makeup, which we all know is a lot of mascara. And so I was like...
2: E- even I know that.
0: Even yes. you know that. And I was like, sign <laughs> me up, I'm, I'm, du- I'm down.
2: I'm in, I'm in. Um,
0: and so it was in the October holidays at school, and we went down to Glasgow because it, they were doing these road shows in different shopping centres around the UK. And Glasgow was the only Scottish one, and we were at school in Aberdeen, so it was like it was quite a few hours of trains and buses and various things. Um, and we got there, and I was scouted in the queue uh, for the thing. And this woman, uh, who was actually in the end, it turned out a very famous model model scout called Ellis Fiona Ellis, um, kind of came up to me, just staring at me, and was like, "Hello, are you here for the competition?" And I was like, "Yes." Yes, I am and she said, "Oh, can I come and take some pictures of you?" And she took me up to the sort of top floor of the shopping center which was empty. It was just like no shops, just like sort of glass ceiling. Um and she took pictures of me for about sort of 45 minutes. It felt like forever. And I was just shaking. Um and that was how I got scouted basically. And so I then I then sort of entered the competition anyway and got the makeup um, and so, I got so,
2: so. Did you win?
0: No, well, I got into the UK top six of the right. Sugar 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 Mag model competition, um, and I didn't win, but they signed me anyway, and that's how I and that's how I got it. So I was very lucky because I got scouted by a good agency, and they they then later on became independent models, and then they became another agency altogether. But I basically had the same agents for like fifteen years. I, I never left them right um and they were great and so i did have difficult situations but they were very rarely because of that agency it was always in other places like new york or athens in greece you know because as a young model you would be sent to these other places to go with a, with an agency in another city for a while and live there and you know, do castings and do shoots and get some pictures for your book and stuff, which would be, you know, your portfolio that you would take around and show to potential clients. Um, And I remember in Greece, there was a situation because at that point, Athens was for some reason a very popular place for like young models who needed photographs. And I was in Athens for a month and I was 17. And again, this is I had no money. I was living off about 50 euros a week. And the agency said, oh, we've got you this shoot with, um, you know, uh, Greece's most successful swimwear photographer or something. Mm. And I was like, okay, great. Um, and it was me and this other British girl and he picked, he picked us up in his car from the hotel and he drove us like two hours outside of Athens and this this is in the days like before iPhones, you know. I, I, literally, I had a black and white phone and an A to Z of Athens, like uh, that. I just did not know where I was. And we got to the house, and that nobody was there. It was just us, this guy, and the, this other kind of older guy who owned the house. There was no hair and makeup, no stylist, no anything. And it was a really dodgy situation. And he he said, you know, go go to the bathroom. I'll bring you your first outfit. And he tried to get me to wear like a basically a G-string. Mm. And I said, I'm not wearing that. And, you know, and the other girl got put in those clothes. And it was a very weird shoot. And I think in the end, I, I was sort of okay because I didn't really compromise and I didn't really get naked in a way that I didn't want to. But if you think about it in terms of like the facts of that situation, it's it's two seventeen-year-old girls in a foreign country. Nobody knows where they are, and you're being driven to a mysterious location by a much older man who's asking you to wear basically nothing. It's like it, it, it's it's so messed up in so many ways. You know, and
2: you're you're two hours outside of Athens in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, we, the 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 scales of power are tipped firmly in this mm. person's favour. And it's yeah. just... That's a horrible situation.
0: And I think, you know, I, I will say that I mainly had a really good time being a model, but I did, I did have very dodgy situations. And... But I think what I will say is that when I... I mean, I was always acting as well, but when the balance kind of tipped and I became more an actor than I was a model... I it felt like walking into a warm hug, really, because I felt like... And I have had extremely dodgy situations, and, uh, situations as an actress as well, but I think on the most... Uh, you know, for the most part, I think there's a respect of actors as, um, I want to say, artists, whereas no, you, I
2: think... You absolutely can, and you should, yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. I
0: think models are, you know... I think seen as very dispensable and kind of yeah like a commodity, I think in a way, I think more than actors are, and I think as an actor you're valued for your personality, or at least I hope you are well, but Whereas also I- it,
2: but also it's that thing amber isn't it when you stroll on set for the first time and you're mm. meeting a plethora of like new people or you're going on to an established job, which mm. you've just done like on peaky blinders yeah um. You have to forge and I've said this before, you have to forge relationships, but genuine relationships um, quickly mm. and be be genuine and not be fake and just yeah. just kind of throw it out there and hopefully
1: uh,
2: you know the uh, the magnet's um, stick. Together, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you know, and they do. They do yeah. nine times out of ten. I say nine times, but seven, seven. <laughs> I've been doing it twenty-five years. Yeah. Um, but you know, they do. They do stick yeah. together, and which is always a, a, a joy. Really, yes. yeah, totally. So after this was this uh, a time for you when you thought maybe I should turn my Back on the modeling and concentrate on the acting, or was there a, a, another time that you thought, I think I need to focus on um, on on solidly on, on acting.
0: I think I began. It was very gradual. I was I was modeling. I mean that happened when I was seventeen, and I was modeling until I was twenty six, basically. Right. Like, okay. So I, I I modeled for a long time, and it's and. And to give it credit, it's the only way I've actually managed to afford to be an actor in London, you know, and so it's... And other things, I got to see the world and travel in a way that I think I never would have done otherwise. But um, it was a very gradual thing. I think I began to realise that at the beginning, a lot of people had said, oh, these two careers are perfect, they go hand-in-hand perfectly, they complement each other, it's perfect, loads of models are becoming actors now, blah, 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 blah.
2: Did you feel that?
0: Well, I just believed them and then i because
2: it because it was told to you
0: yeah and 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 it was told to me to be honest mainly by people in the modeling industry and then i began to realize something that i thought was kind of interesting which is that i felt like they were very very happy for me to be an actor because it gave them something else to kind of sell me on you know as a model but when it came to actually taking time off to be an actor and uh doing things to be an actor like cut my hair or dye my hair or something that was a bit more of a problem and so it was kind of like it worked very well for the modeling for me to be an actor just by kind of name but when it came to the actual kind of reality of really committing myself to being an actor it it, it wasn't taken that well and then also I think being a model it does a very different thing to your physicality like it makes you very, very aware of yourself in a very outward way. And my agent kind of called me into her office one day and she was like, you need to relax. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, I can tell that you care so much about being taken seriously as an actor because you're a model. And I'm seeing it in your tapes and I'm seeing it in the way that you're, you're holding your face in your tapes and I can see that you're trying to always be pretty and that you... You know, you care so deeply about being taken seriously, but you've sort of got the modeling in you as well, and I just need you to relax and It was kind of the best thing she ever said to me, really, because that I was, mean yeah it,
2: it was something I wanted to talk about about um models moving into acting, yeah. and the worry that they would be taken seriously, because I worked last year with a fantastic actress who has a background in modelling... Mm. Um, I mean, she's fucking incredible, as, mm. you know, as you are. So, But it's like, that is going to be a stigma that you would carry around because, you know, you go, oh, that's my background, and I'm moving yeah. to something else now.
0: But I also wonder if it's because I didn't take me seriously. Like, and that that's not a kind of diss on modelling at all, but... I kind of no,
2: um, yeah, but it's more. It's more. It's, it, it's, it's more about being um, self-referential of you, of yourself.
0: Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And and there is an outside perception. I think. Oh, I th-
2: I, 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 absolutely. Well, it's also case in point. Um, people in the music industry mm. moving into acting.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know. Well, or stand-up comedians yes. coming into it and saying, oh, well, how dare you come into this? I wouldn't mm. pop into your world.
0: Yeah. But it's,
2: you know, it's different. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, and I, Yeah. And it's a very personal experience. <laughs>
2: and, and And journey. It's a very personal yeah. journey.
0: Yeah, and I definitely noticed as well that I think... And I I think it's different for everyone, but I think I see this a lot, which is that um, I think I became a better actor with age, to be honest. Like, I think in my early 20s, I was by nature self-conscious and confused and a bit chaotic and a bit all over the place. And that's great for some characters, but I definitely felt like I, I, I settled more into myself as a person and then also as an actor, if that makes sense. And I think... I settling into myself came largely from realizing that while I loved modeling and I was very grateful for it I didn't necessarily want it to be my whole life and I definitely didn't want to be defined I suppose by how I looked and I I think I felt also a bit like I wasn't um using all of my skills you know I'd gone to music school and I had trained very intensely as a as a musician and um I knew I didn't want to be a pianist necessarily, but I really, really knew that I wanted to go more towards being kind of, um, you know, around other creative people and around, um, you know, the people who I felt like were my people. And whenever I did an acting job and met other actors, I was like, oh, yes, this is my, this is my people. <laughs> we, as cringy as that sounds, but yeah. No, yes. it's,
2: it's the thing is, it's not cringy at all because mm-hmm. we learned so much about who we work with as as artists and actors. It's just just the way it happens, and that is what strives us and keeps us going.
0: Yeah.
2: I I think,
0: you know... It's about the people for me, 100%. 100%?! It's like... And if if there's terrible people, the job for me is, like, intolerable. I mean,
2: look, have you ever been (laughs) on a job where... It just doesn't fit. It just, the jigsaw just doesn't fit. And you just, yeah. And we all have. And I'm sure everybody listening to this has been on that job, right? And you went into it with the best intentions.
0: Yeah.
2: And I remember doing something many years ago, and I went into it with the best intentions. And I don't think I was completely the best me in the world <laughs> at all. Um, but it was just like, oh, gee, oh God. I don't yeah. know what to... It was the only point in my life that I went, I don't think I can do... This. I remember going home to the, the apartment I was in in London and I went, I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm yeah. so... I remember calling a friend of mine, crying, going, I'm so upset Mm. Is, and I don't want to have a career or earn a living from something that's going to upset yeah. me so much. And I'm going yeah. to be so distraught about how people think of me or the work that I do. And you just like, oh, well, actually, what you need to do is just throw that aside for a mm. bit and just embrace what's going on.
0: I think and, it's... It's really yeah it's really important to be able to do that. I actually had an experience on a film where I was properly traumatized. And
2: can we can we dive into this a little bit because I'm mean, really yeah. I'm really interested in how other people deal with and it's not about the job, it's about certain situations and environments mm. that they're in. Um yeah. because I think people can learn off it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm happy to talk about it. I think a, a, a part of me a year or two ago would have been worried in case one of the people from the film were listening or something. But then now I'm a bit like, well, if they are, then so what? Because well, they, well, they were terrible. It's, well, well,
2: it's it's a good job we didn't talk. Of, we didn't talk together about a year ago, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> so it's perfect. Um,
0: but you know that kind of people pleasing side of all of us. I think where you go, even when you've been treated badly, you worry about their feelings, whereas oh, I think... Oh, like,
2: in my 20s and possibly early 30s, complete people-pleaser had to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got a film about four years ago, and it was a horror film. And it was to play the lead.
2: You don't have to say what it is, by the way. People can...
0: That's the end of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Amber, I I mean, I love talking to you. It's a terrible story so far. Carry on, please. (laughs) um,
0: Yeah. Uh, Everything that could... Anyway, horror movie, playing the lead, playing a girl who's schizophrenic, who gets traumatised, with a first-time director... Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> that is the end of the story. Well, the, um, thing,
2: the thing is, just... Uh, I've been lucky and unlucky over the years to work with some incredible first-time directors, but also,
0: yeah.
2: you know, the latter. Yeah. And it is a lottery. I think
1: it yeah. is a lottery. Yeah, it
0: is. And I also think the subject matter is... Is is uh, you know it's a thing. Like if it's a horror movie, it just is going to be a bit more intense and a bit more emotionally all over the place. Um, well,
2: well, can we? Can we? Do you mind if we discuss why it was so? Awful? No, no,
0: no, 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 no. Um, well, so I wanted to do it because it was my first lead, and I I'd been. It was just around the time I was beginning to stop modelling properly. And so I still was in that space of, like, desperate to be taken seriously as an actress and desperate to be, you know, seen as really, um, like I was deserved to be in the industry, I think. And so the film came along and, I mean, to be honest, looking back now, the script was terrible, but I didn't care because it was just the chance to play a lead in this film. And I auditioned and I, I got it and I was really over the moon. And the director, I could tell from the beginning, was like a very intense, thought he was Kubrick-type auteur, or at least wanted to be an auteur-type guy, and everything was very intense and very psychological. And this script had the most stage directions I've ever seen in my life. Like, there was maybe no dialogue, or not much dialogue, and then it would be, like, pages of descriptive stuff. Uh, to do with the psychology of what was going on in her head and stuff like that, which I now kind of, to be honest, would see as, as a red flag in a weird way because I feel like you've got to trust the actors enough to like figure things out, I think, a bit. Yeah, but and, also
2: sometimes there's things like that and you go, you can sort that out on set or, yeah. on, or, or on the floor.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so I signed up to do the film, and then the first red flag was that there was a couple of scenes that involved, like, some kind of nudity. There wasn't any sex scenes or anything, but there was, like, a fight scene and things like that. And I asked for what is very, I think, normal, (laughs) especially these days, which was a nudity clause in the contract. And he sent me an email saying how upset he was that I obviously wasn't committed enough to the film because I was asking for a nudity clause, and that the nudity clause was sort of... um, you know, encroaching on his artistic freedom. And that, again, was the first red red flag that I um, saw, but just went, oh, but I just really want to play the lead in this film and it's probably going to be fine, so I'm going to do it anyway. And I went to Luxembourg, because obviously it was filming in Luxembourg. (laughs) Um, And... You know, it was to play this girl who basically had schizophrenia and it was the film was basically this girl being traumatised for the whole time and he um, really kind of seemed to like the fact that I... And I'm totally comfortable talking about this, but, I, you know, I have anxiety, I've had panic attacks, I've had depression. I have very personal history with all of those... I'm not schizophrenic, but I, I have personal history with those very extreme feelings. And he really wanted to sort of draw on that and turn it into this kind of weird method situation, and I... Well, I,
2: on, a, on, a, on a sort of personal note to you, you he was to take something from you to turn it and in, in, in incorporate yeah, into the film. Yeah, like,
0: he would take personal things I told him, private things I told him... Right. ..and then would, like, come up to me on a set and say, just remember this thing you told me. You know, it was like he was trying to steer how <sighs> I... Um, Reached for certain feelings. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to get me to listen to certain music before going for takes and things, which again, now again, I would be like, well, why can't I choose my own music that will help me get into that feeling?
2: Exactly, yeah.
0: Um, And we started filming, and the first two weeks were actually quite amazing. And I I actually had the experience of, of... feeling like I was holding the responsibility of this whole film and kind of carrying it, and I was feeling really kind of empowered, and I was really enjoying going into these very extreme emotional places, and it was feeling fun, actually, which I think is what... It, I think a very important point to make is that it should feel fun, like, even if it's extreme.
2: But and, but, but, but also safe.
0: And safe, yeah, and trusting. Yeah. Uh, and respectful, mm. Um and then the and then in the second week, there was a scene where I had to be possessed and I had to um, circle a man in a cage and then violently attack him while he was inside this cage. And I went to the director a couple of days before and I was like, so what are you thinking for this cage thing? Because there wasn't really anything in the script. And he said, yeah, I don't know, like maybe it's a mixture of like, you know, when people are on crack, but then also, like, maybe you're, like, a cat in heat. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I so can, you have I no can, idea what you want,
2: but I which can, is fine. And also, I can relate to all of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was like, hmm, okay. What the fuck? What the fuck? Oh, good. So we are allowed to swear on this podcast. Oh, okay, you can...
2: S- please, swear away. <laughs> um...
0: So we went for the scene and it was it was exhausting it was in a basement in this dingy house I was in a night dress because obviously because all women in horror movies apparently are wearing nighties um and because he basically didn't have a fucking clue what he wanted, I had to just improvise this being possessed, attacking the guy. I was doing little moments that I thought were brilliant of, you know, trying to fight the possession, like almost coming out of it for a second and going, no, no, I can't. Um, and we did it for about two hours. And it was really exhausting. And then me and the guy in the cage, my fellow actor, <laughs> said, we're just going to have a cup of tea now. Because he, no one had called any break, you know, he'd just gone and gone and gone and gone. So we were kind of let out of this situation, given cups of tea, me and him, me and the other actor kind of sat there like, whoa, this is really suddenly quite intense. And I was told that we were done for that scene. And then they came back and they said, actually, Amber... What we want to do now is a shot where the camera is, is the guy in the cage. So the, it, the camera is the POV of the guy in the cage. And we now want you to do the whole thing again on your own, but... On you? Camera, on me. Oh, God. So I was like, oh, God, okay. So we went back down into this room and I then had to do a, another take of this really intense screaming, crying, spitting, fucking attacking this guy. And... There was no discussion. We just went for the take and he didn't cut. And he kept the the camera rolling for 20 minutes and he didn't cut. And it got to the point where I felt dizzy and... I felt upset because it was it was traumatizing. You don't do that to an actor. You do not say no. you you know you if you say before, "Hey, listen, would it be okay if we maybe did a bit of a rolling take here and see what happens?" different story.
2: Of course cuz it's all about trust and discussion
0: and consent actually.
2: Yes, and consent.
0: And he just didn't do that and so he didn't cut and so I was I was I was basically, it was a power thing and I was just left in this very emotionally extreme place and I looked down the barrel of the lens because he wasn't even in the room, he was upstairs behind his sunglasses having a cup of tea.
2: <laughs> He's, he sounds so great.
0: He's such a cool guy. <laughs> um, and I looked down the barrel of the lens and I said, I'm done. And I was really, really firm about that and I cut the scene And he stormed off set, didn't speak to me, called the day, and it was on a Friday. And then over the weekend, I got these texts basically telling me that I was undirectable, that I was sabotaging his film, that I was sabotaging his creativity, that I was impossible to work with, and that I should be ashamed of myself for being so unprofessional. And I went back to set on the Monday, and... He didn't direct me for the whole day. So he deliberately only spoke to the other actors on the set. And he would look at me and then he'd just walk right past. And this was two weeks into a 12 week shoot where Fuck I was in. Off. Oh I was in my every God. day. I was in, I had 44 filming days on that job. And I remember that so specifically because obviously <laughs> I got into a situation where I was like going. 44, 43, 42. <laughs> um, how,
2: just, how the hell did you keep that together?
0: Well... Because we, we it, spoke
2: about panic attacks
0: well, before,
2: because, I, I mean, I've experienced those yeah. in the past. I don't know how I'd be able to keep that together after a two a two-week into.
0: Yeah, it was really hard. And he started doing things like... Not having stumped people around for when he wanted stunts, you know, there was a scene when he wanted the other actor to actually slap me across the face, and he was being very, very, very firm about the fact that he wanted a real slap. Oh, and
2: so he I... was being abusive.
0: Oh, it was abuse. Yeah, it was psychological oh my abuse. Oh god. And then he was well, sort thi-
2: of... well, physical and psychological abuse.
0: Yeah, and I, I kind of put up with it, and then there was a moment about eight weeks in where there was, a, there was a kissing scene and in, it was written that I would end up taking my top off and I'd kind of said to him in rehearsals that I was quite strict about no nipples and, you know, I would take the top off but it had to be implied. And in the scene, in the middle of the take, he screamed across the set, being like, you're not naked enough, I need you to be more naked. And I... Um, this was, again, on a Friday, and I went... I, by this point, I was fucking done. I was so done.
2: Of course.
0: And I called my... I called the producer, who hilariously was called Jesus, <laughs> or Jesus. <laughs> yeah, uh,
2: well, hopefully he performed <laughs> miracles.
0: <laughs> and by that point, because, you know, the thing, that, the thing is, is the only thing that had kept me going back to set was because I was still so scared of being fired for some reason. I, 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 like, I was still so, still so scared of, like, not finishing the job and letting people down and letting him down. And I, I was thinking about everybody except myself.
2: Yeah, of course. And but, then but, I, uh, but how old were you at this point, Amber? Tw- uh,
0: so 26. Still. Still
2: That's, young. Yeah, so young, so young. I'm also so fresh into it.
0: Oh my God, yeah. And I'm totally still God. trying to and, prove myself. And, of
2: course, and completely manipulated. You know, please. And, um, sorry. I, to I, no,
0: interrupt. no. I went back and I, I can't remember if I called Jesus or emailed Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, I, I sent Jesus a message and I was like, I'm not going back to set on Monday unless you fly here and we have a meeting because this isn't how I fucking work. This is not okay. He's not Kubrick. And even if he was, this isn't okay. Like, you do not treat actors like this. This is appalling. And it was, and I was proud of myself for doing that. And he and the producer came to, we, well, we were in Belgium by this point. He flew to Belgium. And we pulled the director out of lunch and pulled him into my trailer. And Jesus sat there like a kind of couples therapist and was like, Amber's got some things that she'd like to say to you. <laughs> and, uh, This fucking guy sat behind his sunglasses the whole time. So disrespectful, anyway. And I basically just started giving him all of the reasons why he was being a a massive... Cunt. Douche.
2: A mass... No, a massive cunt. cunt. Let's just say that.
0: And at first, he was going, "Oh, Amber, come on, we're not on one of your modelling shoots anymore. This is real art." Oh my blah, 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 blah. god,
2: he didn't say that. And
0: I was go, and I actually, honestly, Craig, I was going, "Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself." I'd like, go,
2: go fuck yourself. Yeah,
0: like I know who I am. I know that I'm not completely established, but I know that this is not how you do things.
2: I mean, talk about and this
0: is abusive.
2: Being a manipulative cunt.
0: And then, by the end of about an hour and a half. He was going, thank you so much for starting this conversation. I'm so happy we did this. And I was going, yeah, too fucking right. And then the last sort of three, four weeks, he still tried to pull all sorts of stuff. Like, he was still trying to get actors to to do things that were unsafe to me and things. But by that point, I was just going, no, not doing it. And then also, interestingly, other crew members, so, like, I remember at one point the key grip stood up and he was like, if you try and make her do that, I'm walking off. And so there was a sense of, um, of sort of, in a way, like, mutiny, you know, where, like, everyone was really done with it. And, but it was really dangerous, and there was a scene that he made me do where he, got, he made me get into a lake in Belgium in November, where it was four degrees. And my body went into shock, and I had a panic attack. And I didn't know that this was unsafe, but the thing that they'd got for me after the lake was a hot tub... And so they took me from an icy lake what? And, and put me in a hot tub, which someone told me later on, and I think this is important for anyone listening to know this. Yeah. It, it could kill you. Because yes. You're, you're not supposed to go from really cold to really hot. Like,
2: no. Um,
0: and so just the whole thing, honestly, was traumatic. And, and I, I finished the job and I, I kind of felt proud of myself for having gotten through it. And I was very emotional when it wrapped And then I had a day, and then I went on to another film in Canada (laughs) with the nicest people in the world. Like, honestly, it was so healing. And then I did that film, and then I got Emma, which was a film I did, Mm. uh, where I met Connor, actually. Yep, And... And then I basically went straight into Emma. And so by the time I'd, I'd started that horror movie and finished Emma, I'd been filming pretty much nonstop for about 11 months. And it oh got to the point God. on Emma where I was having panic attacks every day. And I didn't realise it at the time, but basically I think my body had had started to associate film set with danger, you know? And so, like, even though Emma was an unbelievably amazing experience and everyone was like family by the end and autumn was a brilliant director and just it was it was like a gift of a job i was i couldn't cope i was having panic attacks and i thought I'll, i can never work again i thought i would think i'm this is it i'm done i've spent all these years trying to be an actor and now i'm done and be,
2: because you associated being on set with that anxiety that, that yes. the two went hand in hand whereas Actually, being on set, especially in the last two years, is the safest place to be um, Yeah. you know it should always yeah. be it should always be the safest place to be but also the healthiest place to be because yeah. every you know everybody's being tested and that's by the by that's another thing
0: mm. so how
2: did you not only come to terms with this but sort of deal with it?
0: Well, I didn't work for about a year and a half (laughs) because of COVID, which I think helped. Um, Right. As in, I planned to take six months off and then COVID hit and I had Peaky, but then Peaky got pushed by almost a year. Yeah. And so I was kind of forced into a bit of a kind of um, hiatus, really. And I think time was good. But also, so, do, do do
2: you think, in retrospect, that was healthy for you?
0: I think I needed it because I think I had I I, I had reached a point of like emotional and physical and psychological exhaustion and burnout actually. And I and to, and I'm not saying this lightly. I had a breakdown. Like I got to a point where I couldn't leave the house. I didn't. I I would leave the house and I would cry. I was so overwhelmed by just everything. And so I found myself in a kind of a hole, basically, that I didn't feel like I could get out of. And it kind of, it put all of the kind of any depression or anxiety I'd had in the past just pale in comparison to how I was feeling. And then I, I, I'd helped myself. You know, I got put in touch with a great psychiatrist and a great therapist by a friend and, I was diagnosed with PTSD, <laughs> and I, I um, started a very specific type of trauma therapy called EMDR, which is where you... Um, what, what,
2: uh, sorry, explain to me what EMDR is.
0: So EMDR is like, instead of uh, talking constantly for an hour, which mm. if you're talking about traumatic situations can be quite intense, Yeah. you, you go into very specific memories... And you work on those memories while you basically follow the therapist's hands, go from left to right. And what it supposedly does is it taps into your rapid eye movement, part of your brain. And the idea is that you're you're revisiting trauma, but the the movement of your eyes following something is keeping your body in the present moment. And so what it does is it kind of desensitizes your brain to that traumatic memory because it sort of it allows you to revisit the memory while sort of knowing that you're safe and you're here and you're now and you're not in the trauma anymore, which is okay. kind of tends to be how PTSD works. It's like you go back onto a film set and you think that you're back on that horror movie and then yeah. you
2: yeah, have yeah. a panic attack. Yeah.
0: And so EMDR was like the, the thing that meant that by the time I started Peaky... I mean it was it was amazing because I I went back on a set and obviously I was nervous on my first day as anyone would be but I I I kind of just had this moment where like the the healthy part of my brain clicked back into place and I was like I love my job I love my job and I love being on set and I love the community and I love this person and um you know I Something happened, something changed, and I think it was a gradual sort of healing. But, yeah, I kind of just... And I think COVID did help because I I just had some time off.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but you you say something happened, something changed, but you were in the driver's seat Mm. of something happened, something changed. You acknowledged that something was wrong. Yeah. And you went, right, well, now is the time to acknowledge this. Yeah. and see what we can do about it.
0: Yeah, and I think to be honest, I was I was heading for that anyway. I think I'd always had anxiety since I was a kid and I'd had a very unusual childhood. Excuse me. I think at some point I was probably always heading for a moment where I was going to have to stop for a second and change some things in my life, but I think that didn't mean that didn't mean I should have been traumatized on a film set. I just think being traumatized no. um was a very uh, shortcut way (laughs) of making that happen. Um, But uh, but I think... I still don't think it should have happened, though. No,
2: it it definitely shouldn't have happened. But possibly we're all heading for a moment where reflection is needed.
0: Mm, I think
2: so. I I, I don't know. I, I mean, I can only speak for myself and also the conversation we're having... Right Mm. now, Um, because, you know, there's loads of things that you're saying that I acknowledge and think, yeah, well,
0: yeah,
2: maybe there's a moment that needs to be looked at or we need to step back, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes we're not lucky enough that there's a global pandemic where our work is taken away from us. Yeah, um,
0: I mean, it was also precarious because I'd quit modeling basically, and so financially, it was a shock because <laughs> I but, was like, "But,
2: but oh had God. you had you made that decision to go right? There's no more modeling. The the, yeah. the acting is the focus now.
0: Yeah, it was made properly, properly, like two years ago. Yeah, so yeah, it was it was COVID that really did that. I think um, I think COVID did that. I mean, I sort of like hate talking about COVID still, but I think. Oh, um, me
2: too. We don't talk about that on this, but, but <laughs> it, it, it comes up because it has to.
0: But in you know, in one in one quick little sentence, like I think it put a lot into perspective for a lot of people, and I think it meant that when we all went back to sort of like quote unquote normal life, there were certain things we went back to where we went, hold on a minute, I don't like this anymore. I don't want to do this and. Um, You know, it was the same for me with other things. Like, I didn't want to be social every night of the week anymore. I realised that I really needed time just to sit and be quiet. And, you know, that is one of the things about COVID that I really liked. Uh, Not the pandemic part of it, but just the space and the time. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think it was kind of weirdly quite... It was good for me in terms of a mental health sense, for sure, to have time off and some time just to kind of not be busy and heal from what had happened because it was a really bad experience, that film, you know.
2: But also, do you think, with that time off and reflection, you've gained a lot of tools to combat anything that should come up in the future?
0: Yeah. And I I think anyone who's had a, a really bad, bad period of mental health will know it's like in a weird way I think I think you can recover but I also think in a weird way you're never completely the same again and so I think there's um I I still get moments you know I my my PTSD will flare up and I'll have anxiety or I'll you know I'll be knocked by something and I'll fall a bit again into it but what I've found now is that it doesn't really last that long and definitely there are things about the time off that we had that um, sort of taught me how to deal with it. And it is literally as simple as things like go and do some gardening for four hours. <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, um, switch my phone off or like... Um... It's,
2: the, things like that are so important, mm. you know. I head into the kitchen and, yeah. I, and I find the most complex recipe a couple of possi- onions. <laughs> oh, couple of onions! <laughs> Look, during lockdown, I was making a recipe with forty cloves of onion uh, oh, of of garlic. God. Wow! Look, it was the greatest curry I've ever made. Yeah, uh, that was that was a good few hours of just being in there and just being in the zone. And yeah, yeah, th- yeah. Things like that are important.
0: Gardening has become my thing since moving house and inheriting this really amazing garden. I'm like god I need to learn how to keep plants alive and yeah. you know make it make it make it flourish
2: oh, um before I before I had to fly over to Dublin where I am now um I have a little small garden at the front of my house and I made sure it was all weeded and it was all clean ready for me to plant when I get back cuz I know it's going to all bloom and I'm going to get my pants is in, and I'm going
0: to get
2: free, yeah. and it's going to be beautiful. So, yeah, yeah things yeah, like yeah. that are a good thing to look forward to. Yeah. Speaking of good things to look forward to, or good things that have passed, mm. um, and obviously, you know this podcast, I don't talk about jobs that much, but I know, <laughs> I know having you on this podcast, people would be upset with me if we don't talk a little bit about oh. picky blinders.
0: Peaky fucking blinders. Um, um,
2: talk about safety, nurture, kindness, uh, happiness, um, integrity. How was it stepping into such an elaborate, elaborate, I can't even speak, elaborate, ela- that's not even the word, is it?
0: Established.
2: That's that's the word. I'm so tired. That's,
0: <laughs> I'm that's so four. Sorry. That's four
2: thirty in the morning for you, Amber. Oh no. Um, how was it stepping in?
0: Well, the the exciting thing was the character because because of the the last two years because of the two years I'd had before I got peaky. Yeah. Because I'd been so emotionally uh, abused on set and yeah. drained. Yeah. I was just like, I would read sides for auditions and if it said, she bursts into tears, it would be like my body would shut down, I just wouldn't be able to cry. I'd be like, my body would just be like, no, not doing it, it's not safe. And so I got the side through for Peaky and I obviously knew Peaky and I loved Peaky as a show and so I'd always, I'd sort of, th- I knew that they were coming to the end and I'd always sort of had this thought of like, oh God, wouldn't it be amazing to be in Peaky? Um, but I got the sides through, and it was just to play this woman who just um, is a fascist.
2: But, oh, she's um, she's she's such a <laughs> lovely character. She's, she's s- just a lovely, <laughs> what a, what a lovely kind woman. Soul she is. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: um, but you know, she just doesn't give a fuck about anything, and um, she's not emotional, and she's what uh, she's sort of playful and um, mischievous and. Um, really just a delight to play as an actor who was just a bit out of gas when it, when it came to, like, being really upset all the time. Um, and so I I read those scenes and I was like, yes, this is the mood I'm in. This is what I want to play at the moment. Um, I don't want to go to work and feel traumatised. I just want to go to work and have a laugh. And obviously the subject matter is pretty intense because I am a Nazi in the show. <laughs> um but, as an actor, you know in, you...
2: in the show let's just in make, the right show clear right now, in the show
0: in the show um but it you know being able compartmentalizing that slightly, it was very, very fun to just be able to turn up and just say things and not care about consequences and not care about being liked and just be able to like drop a bomb and just like watch it explode and not really care about any of the after effect and um so that was the thing i found the most fun um and then like we said before it's about the people for me and i made friends on that job that i love and cherish and um you know the costume designer Alison and i still speak on the phone every couple of weeks and um the other actresses kate phillips and Sophie Rundle and Charlene McKenna. Like, oh, just brilliant, brilliant women. Natasha O'Keefe. Oh, my oh my God, Natasha who, O'Keefe. Who yeah. is
2: a very close friend of mine who oh. I absolutely adore, who absolutely refuses to come on this podcast, so we need to make <laughs> a petition everybody... Okay, come on this podcast. Yeah, Um, She
0: really welcomed me in, actually, because we were in Manchester and it was during COVID, nothing was open.
2: I know, because I Um, was there, because we were trying to meet up. Oh, yeah. Me and we were trying to meet up for a drink. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And she would just text me and be like, do you want to go for a walk today? And I just thought that was so sweet, because it was during a time when, you know, she really didn't need to go out of her way like that. No. Um, And she was amazing. Um, And, yeah, it was just, it was... It was joyous, really, um, and it was. I, I was sort of sad in a way that it happened during COVID because I felt like we could, didn't get half of the experience, which was like the social, extracurricular side. No. But I did also really enjoy turning my Manchester hotel room into a bit of a <laughs> zen retreat, and I took candles and things from London and Look, kind of just moved in.
2: We do what we need to do, and also the fact that that social side of our... Career and our jobs was taken away. Yeah, we're now um,
0: making thankful. up for lost time. Well,
2: but also we're really thankful for the fact that, in part, it's kind of back. Yeah, in, in a way, and we're thankful yeah. for it. And we'll, you know.
0: But I think also, like for me personally, Emma was another um, lesson in that we. Well, as I've said, I was emotionally spent and Emma was a job where we all had dinner every night together. And I think that was for me too much. Like, I think the lesson I I had from that was like, I can do the dinners and I can do the drinks, but I can't when it's during the week and we have to be up at four because it's just like, it's physically impossible. You just, you know, you run out of steam. Um, Well, it's
2: mentally impossible. Yeah. My God.
0: Totally. I mean, there was a day on Emma when I had to be up at five and I left the hotel bar at 11.30 and I just thought, oh my God, what have I done? Um, and, you know, I learned that lesson <laughs> very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, it was a shame that we couldn't socialise more on Peaky, but I also think it definitely did help me kind of conserve energy a bit. Um, and, yeah, and I, yeah... Watched, watched the last episode on Sunday and I just really missed... I mean, it's going to sound so messed up because of who she is, but I did really miss the character. Am I allowed to say that?
2: You definitely. As someone I just who, did. <laughs> as someone who's played quite a lot of despicable characters in their career, yes, uh, you are allowed to say that. Amber, this has been an absolute joy. I'm, oh, not gonna, I'm not going to lie. I hope you've enjoyed it.
0: We didn't um, even talk about music, but...
2: Well, look, here's the thing, time. right? We've got a part two in us already. I think we do. I think we do. And yeah. hopefully our part two will be us in person around the table yeah. instead of on a computer screen. But there's a question that is sporadically asked, and I think it's something... That isn't asked uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. So, I want to ask you, are you ready for this question? I think so. Are you happy?
0: Yeah, I am really happy. Really happy. Yeah, you are. Yeah.
2: But (laughs) podcast listeners can't see, but I can, you know what I can (laughs) see? I can see it in your eyes and I can see it in your cheeks.
0: Yeah, my shiny. Sweaty cheeks, no any jokes. Um <laughs> No, I'm really happy. I I just Yeah, I I had like the worst couple of years of my life and uh and then the best couple of years of my life. And I think um there are things that happened to me during that time that just shouldn't have happened. Like, but I also think that um I I I'm the most grounded and happy and calm that I think I've ever been. And so I think some of it happened for, for a reason. Um, and and I have a really amazing relationship. And, you know, not not to say that you can't be really happy and amazing on your own, but that has definitely, um, of course, just been amazing.
2: Amber, this has been yeah. brilliant. Thank you so much for being my guest. This has been Thank a joy. Thank
0: you. It's I'm sorry to watching. keep you up late when you've been up since 4am. But...
2: Shut up. I've got a late pickup tomorrow. It's totally fine.
0: Oh, fine fine
2: i'm not sorry at all all right take care bye Bye.
1: and another episode is done what did i tell you she's brilliant she's great um i really hope you enjoyed that conversation thank you so much for downloading and supporting Keep the messages coming through on social media. You know where we are. We're on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Well, look, I'm going to have to go. And you'll probably have to go too because that was a longer than normal episode. But it was fantastic. Uh, massive thank you to Amber for brewing up her pot of tea and joining me in the evening. Um, and yeah, take care of yourself. And I shall see you next week for the last episode of the season. Let's go out with a bang. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Take care. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.